Some stories <clears throat> have lots of characters and plot lines <clears throat> and twists and turns in them. You know, I, I went and saw those Lord of the Ring movies. I didn't understand a lot. There were people with pointy ears and they were not Vulcans. It did not fit in my grid. The story begins in the Shire with a hobbit. I don't understand that either. His name was Frodo, and he inherits a ring from Bilbo. They have strange names. Galadolf the Grey was a wizard. Frodo leaves the Shire. He's accompanied by, of all people, his gardener. That's who I would take with me, wouldn't you? <clears throat> and then two other guys who just kind of tag along. They are nearly, they're encountered by the Nazgul. And they avoid them by going through the old forest. And there's a council of Eldron and Sauron and Saruman and Mount Doom and Mordor and Gimli. Who's a dwarf? There's an elf and Boromar. And then there's other people. Are you keeping up with that? Some of you are. That's what's scary. You, and then there's right back there. I know who you are. You understood all that. That's scary. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> there's Misty Mountains, Mountains of Mines of Moriah, Watcher in the Water, Balin, Balrog, Garadel, and Celeborn. And all I know in the movies that I watch them, and I've watched them lots of times to try and figure it out, is that there's good guys, and there's bad guys, and then there's a lot of really ugly guys called orcs, and then there's Gollum, who has a split personality. I didn't understand all that, but I did watch it a few times. But I also know <clears throat> that there's a lot of people who feel the same way about the Bible. They know some of the stories. They know that there's Adam and Eve and an apple and a snake in a garden. They know that there's a flood and a boat with a lot of animals. Eight people and no sanitation plan. They know there's Abraham and Sarah and a baby at 100 years old. <clears throat> they um, know that there's some brothers who sold their baby brother into slavery who eventually became like really powerful in Egypt and saved his brothers who sold him into slavery. Yeah. There's Moses and 40 years in the wilderness. Then there's Hebrews who move in the land of Canaan and they overflow their first opponent by blowing their horns. That wasn't even in the Lord of the Rings. There's a talking donkey, a talking snake, a bronze snake, water from a rock, water that parts, ten plagues and ten commandments, and Charlton Heston, baby. And then there's hookers and witches and prophets and kings. And if that isn't enough, it's in there. I'm not making this up. There's circumcision, foreskins, and incest. Are you with me? What is this book about with all that in there? This morning, like every other epic literature, the Bible has an overarching theme and thread that runs through it. From book to book, from beginning to end, there is a thread and a theme that's going all the way through it. And it spans eternity. It, it goes from when there was no time being kept to when there will be no time being kept anymore on that end of eternity. And this morning we're going to look at three threads of this tapestry, 
three themes that run through this book and pick those out and try and understand how they lead us into an open grave on a Sunday morning in an ancient night. So if you want to if you want to track with me, I'm going to be going through things pretty quickly, but if you want to be there in Genesis 1, please go ahead and join me there. We believe about this book that this book is not like any just epic literature. We believe that like what the Apostle Peter said about this book, he says, but, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What Peter is saying in that is that we believe that this was not a bunch of guys over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, multiple authors came together and colluded to make sure that this had some kind of semblance of coherence, of just continuity through it. Instead, God moved men to record this. And because God was involved, it's not literature, it's not ink on paper, but it is divine. Timothy wrote, says, it is living and alive. That's what we believe about this book. So this morning, I want to draw a piece of that thread out, starting here in Genesis. Genesis 1, even. All right? And so, that's where we're going to be. Let's just look at it really quickly, if you're going through here. You know this is the creation story, right? You know that God has this perfect setting. He's creating. And he comes to this place and, we're gonna, and where he, be, he creates man. Go to chapter 2, verse 7 here. When the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it goes on to talk about a river. And it goes on, then it comes over here that God creates a wife, verse 18. Then God, then the Lord God said, it is not good for him, for man to be alone. I will make him a helper, suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to man. To see, what he, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, there were, that was its name. He goes on, he says, he instituted marriage. And the man said this later in verse 23. Back up to verse 22. And the Lord God fashioned into the woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this now bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she is taken of man. And for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Well, that's the story right there. That's how this, this, that's how this all begins with man and with this thread that we're going to pull out of this tapestry. And, and, the, and every, we're going to have three of these threads, three of these stories. This first one here is about Adam. The first thread is about Adam. God's creation and what God instituted with Adam. We have here in this, in this setting that we just read about perfection. It existed for that time frame. We don't know how long, but it existed for that time frame. And then, but never again since then. Perfection. They didn't work. There was not sickness or death. 
They have all the food, shelter, and good weather they could ever want. Relationally, things were just as good. They communed with God with an intimacy that we longed for. They were friends. And between Adam and Eve, they always agreed with one another. They didn't have to work out a budget. It just worked. It just happened, right? You know, they didn't have any disagreements over the remote control. They were able to work that out. There was no broken relationships. There was no saying, I'm sorry. There was no walls built to have to take down. It was perfect. And God blessed this creation. And what he said was this. He told them, this is his mandate to them. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the flesh of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living creature that moves on earth. So all they had to do was to have a family and pick their food. There was that one rule, there was that one tree, there was that one particular tree that they were instructed to not eat from. And as you know, probably the story goes, they disobeyed the one rule. And the perfection of that garden was ruined. And immediately they go from pure intimacy, like we dream of, to brokenness. Not just between Adam and Eve, but also between Adam and Eve and God. Immediately they experience guilt, shame, relational issues. The first episode of He Said, She Said took place. They shifted blame and said, he did it, no, she did it, no, he did it, no, the snake did it. And the blessing that they had in the beginning was gone. Now the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, which was perfect, which was, which was easy to fulfill this mandate. Now it comes in Genesis 3, he says, no longer will it be easy. He says, now that multiplying part, it's going to come with pain in childhood. That, that mandate of, of dominion over all of the world, that was easy before, now it will come by the sweat of your brow, you will have to eke it out every single day. And before they had been unclothed with no shame, and now they immediately felt like they had to get covered up because they knew. Because they were shame. And now, where there was no disease, no corruption, now there was corruption. There was death. Things great. So, this is just a, a bonus. This is just a side note. When people say, and even this week I had this discussion, when people say, well, why would God allow that baby to have cancer? Well, you see, God didn't allow that baby to have cancer. Adam introduced that to that baby. Because it was perfect. It was sinless. It was, it was without corruption. There was no disease. And in his willfulness to choose to do things his way, he broke that. And he put in the case, he introduced that disease into mankind. So it started way back then, and it's gone all the way to now. To our children. That when we look at them and their brokenness and their disease, and we wonder why God would do that. Adam did that. Adam did And they suffer, and we suffer now because of Adam's sin. And so as our bodies break down, that was Adam's fault. As our relationships get frayed and strained, that was Adam's fault. As we, we fall into having to suffer the consequences for sin, that was 
He introduced that to each and every one of us. So the impact of Adam's failure has gone viral. The evil of North Korea wanting to blow up evil one, that was Adam's fault. Child porn happens because of Adam. You name something that is evil, broken, harmful, or painful, and you can trace it back to the garden. And that includes the boss who treats you unfairly, you know, the, the addiction to shopping and porn and food and sex and anything else, the greed that prompts you to steal from others, and the emotional distance of parents, children, spouses, and loved ones. All that and more began with the sin of Adam. It's what Bible talks about missing the mark. It talks about disobeying God. Of taking what God says and saying, no, I'll set that aside and do what I want. That, in a nutshell, is sin. The most damaging effect of all this sin was that Adam and Eve no longer had intimacy with God. They did walk with him before. They did hang out with him before. But now sin came between them and what was like this and now was parted. And sin was in the way. Humanity no longer was vibrant and live. Now it was wounded and broken and struggling. That's our first thread. Our second thread goes to Abraham and his seed, Israel. You're probably familiar with Abraham. He had a similar experience as Adam did. He was told that you'll be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 12, if you want to go there. And there in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house into the house which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make you a great name. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in you all families of the earth will be blessed. So you hear what he just said to him? He said, go and make babies. Go and make a family. And through that family, I will bless all the world. I will bless all the earth. So Abraham had this similar experience as Adam did. You'll be fruitful. You'll multiply. I'll bless you and watch over you. And through you, the world will be blessed. So God begins with this other man. You could say that he was a new Adam. And through Abraham, that intimacy and abundant life that Adam had, well, Abraham's descendants will bring that back around. The blessing has come through those descendants, that was supposed to come through those descendants, they would be called Hebrews, Jews, Israel. What Adam had before in the garden now depended upon Abraham's descendants, Israel. And that intimacy and that union that existed when the first creation happened now could be demonstrated if Israel obeyed. If Israel honored God and set aside all the other things, all the other gods, all the other things that would get in the way of their relationship with God. All the world would come and see and know that God was real and mighty. Israel was now the showcase. The garden was the showcase for God before, but now Israel is going to be the showcase for God as they obey. But Israel didn't do any better than Adam. And for hundreds of years, for the biggest part of your Bible, for the biggest part of your Bible, it is the story of Israel obeying, disobeying, being punished. Obeying, disobeying, being punished. Obeying, disobeying. The second thread runs like that. 
And so what happened was that just like Adam was expelled from the garden, from his land, Israel was expelled from their land. And God sent other conquering nations to come in to conquer them, and they were exiled to a foreign land. Second attempt to glorify God. And there's the third man. The third man, the third character, Jesus. God's own son. In Jesus, Paul wrote about him in Romans 5. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. Did you hear that? One man sin entered the world. He's speaking of Adam. So just as one man sin entered world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. That's what we talked about. That was the first attempt. That was Adam. That's the first thread, the third, the first story through the Bible was how sin came into the world and God and man dealt with it. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says this. Paul wrote, for as in Adam all die, so in Adam There was no death until his sin, and then with his sin, he introduced death into the equation, and immediately, death began to happen. Adam and Eve, they died. Their two sons, one killed the other, and they died. Every man coming down through the history, that death happens. Death is sure. I did a a service this week for a veteran here in, in the area. He died. It's going to happen to every person in this room. The only thing about death is, how do you approach it with fear or with confidence. Death in Christ gives us the ability to approach it with confidence. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be And this third character, and this third thread that we pull out of the Bible, the other two failed, and death continued to reign. But in this thread, in this attempt to glorify God, in this this thread of bringing another character into the story, a man was born to a young woman. He grew up. He lived a sinless life. You know the story. He lived a sinless life. He was wrongly accused wrongly tried, wrongly tortured, wrongly executed, innocent of sins of accusation that were not his. Where Adam failed and Israel failed, Christ succeeded. The first two characters of our stories, they brought death, like we said, destruction, destruction and corruption in the world. Jesus brought the opposite. While the others couldn't obey, Jesus obeyed everything. He did not fail in any manner at all. Do you get the difference there between the first two characters and this character? The first character, he only had one rule. Just one. Don't eat from the tree. Leave it alone. All the rest is yours. Interesting, isn't it, that with this next character, 
Israel, Abraham, they didn't have one rule. They had hundreds of them. And they couldn't obey them all. But the main rule was this. The main rule was this. What is it? We even call it our purpose statement for our church. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That was the biggest rule. And what would they do? They walked into a new land, and they saw other gods there. They saw other gods in the area. This god for the Moab, I saw the god for the... And, and Dallas saw these other gods, and they said, I like that god too, let's just add them to the list. And he said, worship the Lord your God. Well, what did he say throughout the Old Testament? He says, I am the Lord your God, there is no other. Time and time again, he said, there is no other. And time and time again, they said, we'll make another. And that's when you get into these passages in Job and Isaiah where he says, you worship what you made with your own hands. You cut stone and you called it powerful. You carved wood and you said it was your God. How In both of the first instances, they could not obey one rule. They could not obey a multiple rules and enters the scene He steps into the scene with all the rules that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the temple worship and everything of his day and time. He stepped into that scene and he kept all the rules. As a matter of fact, he even went above and beyond the rules. He taught things that they had never even thought about before. He taught that the way to live by those rules were just, they'd never dreamed of it. He stepped into there and he said things like, give unto Caesar. That which is Caesar's, give unto God that which is his. He stepped into this scene and he said, the least shall be the greatest. Not the greatest shall be the least. He didn't, I mean, he didn't teach that you had to be powerful to be the most, but to be the greatest. He said, the least shall be the greatest. He stepped into this scene and he said, serve each other, even the most subservient ways. He stepped into this scene and he said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for another. He said, leaders must be servants. He said, the king will die for his subjects. No king. No king had ever opted to die for his subjects. Kings send other people to do that for them. They don't fight on the front lines. They send other people. Adam and Israel were supposed to exhibit what life with God could be like when they obeyed, how the blessings would overflow. Yet in Jesus, we finally see that man, when he actually obeys in everything, we see this man, when he does what he says, when he does what God asks, we see rich blessings. We see the heavens open up at least twice. One time he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Another time he opens up heavens and he says, this is my son, do what he says. He's not done that a lot in the course of history. But he did with this character twice. We see in the life of Jesus what we should have seen in the garden. We see that what it can look like. We see that in him is the supreme demonstration of great sacrificial 
This third character goes further than all the rest. When he talks about serving others, and he talks about serving them subservently, he shows up with the twelve, and he washes their feet. And then ultimately, he comes to this other place where these twelve, they have a debt that they owe. They have a fine that they owe. And he says, don't worry, I'll pay it for you. I'll pay the fine for you. But he didn't say that to just them. He said it to Don. He said it to Terry. He said it to Adam. He said it to Becky. And he said it to every person in this room and every person who's ever took a breath on this planet. He said, you owe a fine. You have sinned. You broke the rules. And when you, and when you break the law, you owe a fine. And it's $105 to break the $25 to 25-mile-hour speed limit here in Newtown Borough. He says, if you break the law, you owe a fine. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay the fine for you. I'm going to pay the fine for you. And in Jesus' death, that fine was paid. It's the, and in his death, in that moment on the cross, or those moments on the cross, those three hours of suffering, that was the epitome of obedience, of showing up what ultimate obedience looks like. He takes the wrongdoing of mankind, of you and I, all the debts that have been owed, overwhelming debt. And he says, you can't pay it. I'll pay it for you. And so on Easter Sunday, resurrection is an exclamation. Easter Sunday, the resurrection is, is the affirming of that death. Easter Sunday, is, is the resurrection is this. It's like when you owe a debt. Ken, you owe a debt. Michael, you owe a debt. This whole room owes a debt. And none of you can pay that debt. No one can pay the, room for, pay, can pay the debt for one of you, much less all of you, much less all of mankind. No one can do that. And so what he says is this, I'll go to the cross and I'll die. And they'll go, they're like, what? you know what, two other guys died that day, so what? And he says, but I'm the Messiah. They said, you know what, a guy showed up the week before you and the week after you, and he said he was a Messiah too. So what? And he says, then just wait. This is what's happening. I'll die, I'll pay that debt, and just to make sure that you know that I paid that debt, three days later, I'll come back Three days later, when others died, when others called themselves messiahs, no one else, by their own power, came from the grave alive again and appeared to hundreds. No one else had done that. And so for anyone who says, did he really die? Was his death enough? His resurrection shows that his death was all it took. His resurrection says, there's no one else could do this. And what he says, when he says he dies for you, he died because he came back alive. And no one else can do No one else can die. No one else wrote it by their own The resurrection is the affirmation, is the confirmation that the debt's been paid and it is waiting for you and I to accept it for ourselves. If we so choose. That 
All the brokenness that Adam placed in your life and my life can begin to be repaired. Interesting thing is that there's a lot of preachers on this moment right now around the world, or at least here in the United States, at least in, in this time zone, that they're standing in pulpits and they're saying this, come to Jesus and he'll make everything right. I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you that you, when you come to Jesus, he's going to fix your broken heart. He's going to fix your broken family. He's going to fix MS or cancer or anything else. He's not guaranteeing that. What he is guaranteeing is, I'll give you peace in the midst of that. I'll give you comfort in the midst of that. I'll give you hope in the midst of that. Now, how many people in the cancer ward have that right? How many of you with broken relationships have that right? Only those who name Christ as their Savior and have entered into a relationship with Him where He gives hope, where He gives peace that's beyond understanding. He didn't promise to take you out of something, He promises to take you through it. No one else is making that promise to you today. This morning, if you're here and you've never decided for him before, if you've never, if you've thought that he is just a lot of talk, if you're this morning, if you're here and you've decided that you don't need him, I'm asking you to reconsider. I'm asking you to think through how you are going to pay a debt for sin, for brokenness on your own. I can guarantee you, if you want to continue to do that right now, you will exhaust yourself. And there'll come a day and a time, like that man that I buried on Friday, when you'll know that doing it yourself is going to work. It doesn't work. But God, but He stepped in. He said, "I'll pay the debt for day." What you have. Just take that verse that we talked about earlier, John 3, 16, where it says, If you believe in Christ, you shall have a Christ in life. This morning, this room is full of people who have done that. This morning, you can do that on yourself. It's very, very, very simple. You simply just have to acknowledge your brokenness and your inability to fix it and your great need. Do it in your own words, in your own time, and your own space. Come up and do it with me. Turn to the person next to you and do it with them. Go and do it in your car on the side of the road. Wherever you do it, do it. And do it today. Do it today. But I just, uh, as our worship team comes back up here right now, what I'd like to just ask you to do is just contemplate. What is it you're going to do when you leave here today? If you've not already taken care of this sin problem, what is it you're going to do today to take care of it? Go walk little ladies across the road. 
say please and thank you, burn incense, you know, sacrifice calves and lambs. None of that stuff will ever be. None of that stuff will ever be. That Jesus is. Please be Father, this morning we come to you and we acknowledge our great need for you. We acknowledge, Father, that we have broken the rules and that we were born into a character, into a life that breaks rules from Adam. We, Father, come and admit that we cannot fix our sin problem ourselves, but that you can, you did. Now we simply have to believe it and accept it for ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would affirm the hearts here that have that are that is celebrating Easter because it changed their life. And Father, I pray that you would convict the hearts that are here that are unsure about what Easter means to them. We want it, Father. You want it more than you want it. This and great so Father, we thank you. We praise you for such great sacrifice. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's all. 